You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. I'm delighted today to be joined by Dr. Gigi Granval. She's a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and an associate professor in the Department of Environmental Health and Engineering at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. She's an immunologist by training, and she leads the center's ongoing efforts to track the development marketing of molecular and antigen tests, as well as serology tests. Welcome, Gigi. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for the invitation. Great to be here. So let's start with some basics. Um, before We're going to concentrate most, most of our conversation today around that world that you are uh, at the center of, which is testing. Let's start with the basics and tell us why does testing in its various forms matter still as tools in our response to the pandemic? We're talking about PCR tests, antigen tests. We can talk about serology tests for antibodies. You know, where the president tells us we're moving away from case counts. We're focused on hospitalization. But he's also saying we're going to move towards a massive expansion of antigen test availability for American citizens. We'll talk a bit more about that in a moment. He's also rushing to try and expand uh, access to and levels of PCR testing. We're again in a crisis moment. We've been in a few earlier crisis moments where we come up way short on testing and people scratch their heads. So tell us, first of all, what's the basic case for why we need testing so much? Well, part of the reason that testing is so complicated and challenging is that people are using tests for so many different purposes, and they're all important, but they have different demands on the system as a whole. First of all, you need testing to be able to know who has COVID. And so people have a vested interest in knowing um, if they are infected and so that they can limit the possibility that they might infect somebody else. But people also need tests to be able to travel. I had to get a test for my, at that point, unvaccinated uh, 11-year-old to be able to send him to summer to summer camp. And so people need tests for a variety of purposes. And it's a it's kind of the need that keeps on on needing because you can't just get one test and forget it. You have to constantly um, get tests because tests are a moment in time. But on the bigger level, I mean, you know, you just want to know who has COVID and, and it's part of a strategy, a layered strategy to be able to limit transmission. So it's a matter of giving people agency themselves to know whether they're ill and contagious and they want to protect their family, their community. It, at a population level, it's giving you the pic- bigger picture of where where are the hotspots, where are the transmission directions, the trajectory going here. And then, of course, for things like travel, as we reopen, by definition, reopening is tied to testing, Right. Yeah, it's instead of having a a vaccine passport that's just one thing, instead we have this constant need for a testing passport. So you are constantly in the state where you need to get testing services. And uh and so that that's likely to continue for some time. So why is it that the United States seems so prone to stumble in this area? Um over the last two years, we know the long story of the CDC starting with this 
March, April, May, stumbles around developing a test that's become a kind of iconic storyline of the narrative of the last two years. But it's more than that. It's a series of a series of episodes, the most recent one being right now with Omicron, with a rush towards demand and people saying, well, we just don't have adequate testing capacity in place. And yet many other countries seem to do far, far better than we do. So what is it that explains our our experience here, where we seem to be so prone to stumbling when it comes to testing? Yeah, it's not a simple answer. I mean, the, the initial uh, lack of testing in early days led to a lot of people who had had COVID. And I don't know if you remember, the thing that everybody wanted was to get an antibody test to see if they had antibodies against COVID so that they could potentially be protected into the future. And so the FDA allowed a lot of companies to enter that space. It became kind of a wild west for for uh, antibody testing. And then that got clamped down. And then PCR testing seemed to be okay. Rapid antigen tests were getting on the market, but nobody wanted them. And because we took this approach for the rapid antigen test, that it would be a supply and demand sort of issue. So because people weren't demanding the rapid antigen test, then they disappeared from the shelves and then Delta hit. And then people wanted rapid antigen tests and they weren't there. Um, with Omicron, I think that there are problems with um, how available tests have been, certainly with rapid antigen tests, but a lot of countries have been stressed when it comes to Omicron and testing. And it's even countries that have done previously well with availability of testing, like the UK and Germany, there are angry newspaper articles in those countries as well about how testing is not as available as it should be. So I think we would always have been in a, in a bad position with the surge of Omicron um, because people are sick. The people who are doing the tests, are there, isn't an, are there aren't as many people that are available to work in the lab because they're sick. Then there's this crushing demand, but we didn't help ourselves along the way. That's for sure. But we also, as a country, we have a very frag, maybe you could say a word about this. We have, a, we have an innately very fragmented system, right? I mean, we until just recently when the president began to speak more in terms of a national approach on testing. We had left it yes, to, the, to the marketplace on antigens. We'd left it to states or, or other entities to take up. Um, say a bit about that. I mean, we just, we just have, sure. have yielded the space or not had the will at the, uh, at, the, at the top of our government in this period to make this a top priority, at least until recently. Well, I think across the, the board, uh, our early response to COVID was extremely fragmented and, um, and it was the state's responsibility to look out for themselves. And so there wasn't an, a national approach. That is, that was where we were for all of 2020. And, uh, that was really reflected in the, the antibody test story because cities and states were purchasing antibody tests, uh, sometimes from abroad. Um, Maryland purchased a bunch from, from a company in South Korea, um, and they weren't effective. And in many cases, a lot of those tests, uh, you would have gotten a more accurate result if you flipped a coin. And so 
there were a lot of those kinds of stories where people were looking out for themselves um, if they could because there was no national response. And it's only been recently that we have a little bit more federal coordination when, with regard to testing. Yeah. Let's talk now a bit about what the Biden administration has been doing. Maybe we can look back to September when the president announced this, the path out of the pandemic announcement and committed some significant resources. I think at that time, about $3 billion towards this effort. And you could say a bit about what the elements of, of, of that effort were. And now at, with the arrival of the Omicron emergency and all the outcry about the shortfall in both PCR and antigen testing, we've got this even larger mobilization happening now a commitment to 500 million antigen tests to be produced and distributed by the federal government through the mails or with a, an app where citizens come forward, all, all now in the works. And then they're going to be using the Defense Production Act authorities to sort of bring that forward. It's, it's a, this is a new day, it seems to me, in terms of approach on testing. Tell us your thoughts on this. Yeah, so... In the summer, there were not that many tests. There was a shortage of rapid antigen tests. And, um, and it came at a really bad time because all of a sudden we were dealing with Delta. People were sending their kids back to school. And because people hadn't wanted the antigen tests in May or June when they were plentiful, they were no longer on the shelves. So, Abbott is one of the bigger manufacturers to the U.S. They closed down one of their plants and destroyed a bunch of millions of tests. So this is the problem of relying on this um, supply and demand model for for a public health measure instead of thinking, okay, we'll, we'll be okay to waste some tests if we don't need them, but the consequences of not having them are, are much worse. So we have to have a, a just-in-case kind of model for, for the tests. And in the fall, in response to this shortage, as people are scrambling for rapid antigen tests, the Biden administration did do a number of things to, to make them more available and purchase tests, tests uh, negotiated with major retailers to, to lower the prices. And I think that it actually did make a difference because tests became much more available but the um, it took a while to turn the ocean liner. And so it was not enough for the sudden surge of Omicron cases. And all of a sudden, rapid antigen tests became like the hottest Christmas toy, you know, as everybody was looking for them and, you know, and they were really hard to find. And also, we could talk about this. I think some people have a little bit of outsized expectations for what the tests can provide as well. And I think um, I think that's an, another thing that's going on here. Gigi, explain what you mean by that. So I talk to people all the time about tests and, and they wonder when they should get tested or um, what kind of tests they need to use in what circumstance. And I sometimes... I have to say very often that, you know, tests are a moment in time. They can only tell you about what was going on in your body at the time that the sample was taken. And I think people have, they want the test to be a little bit more perspective than, than they can possibly be. And, you know, that they're, oh, okay, I tested negative. I'm good. And not yeah. thinking that you can get infected um, later on. 
I don't know if this, I've been thinking in recent days, I wonder if um, it would be an interesting study for somebody to do to, to see if this was influenced a little bit by people's experience with HIV and HIV testing, which is a little bit more, you know, you, you know, you have a good idea of, about your potential risks. But this uh, constant testing and being in this in-between state where you might have been infected um, is, is definitely a challenge for a lot of people to, to, to conceive. So can you say a bit about what we can anticipate in terms of this initiative by the president to bring forward 500 million antigen tests in January, another 200 to 500 million afterwards? This is really big. Some have said it's, it's not big enough. Some, you know, do we have a clear idea what the true scale of demand is and, and, and over what period of time? We're in the midst of a surge, right? A coronavirus surge, which is going to peak and then crash sometime in the coming weeks. So the demand may peak as well, but then slip off. But then we'll have demand down the corridor a few more months. Potentially, we can't just go back and say, oh, that's over. So what is this? Tell us how you're thinking about this this new initiative and what it means and what it signals about the U.S. approach? Well, I think that the initiative is going to do a lot to get more tests in the hands of people that they can use. So I think that this is all fantastic. There are other things going on that are not part of this initiative to bring um, more tests to the market. So there's the FDA is working with uh, an NIH uh, group to be able to help some of the companies that have submitted applications for rapid antigen tests to help them along to get their products ready for submission for an emergency use authorization. So that should help to increase the market size, which should also help to keep costs down, et cetera, and hopefully bring some more technologies to the market, um, some things that, that can combine some of the strengths of PCR testing, the extreme specificity to the rapidity of the rapid antigen tests. So I, I think there'll be a lot of advances on the both the availability and I hope the, the future of testing, because I think on a bigger picture, People want health information. They want information about their own bodies. And, and I think we're at this weird time where we know it's possible and um, people want access to it. And it's, and it's the access that's been a, a challenge. And I've said this from the very beginning. I mean, people have uh, Fitbits. They are very into monitoring their health. And here we know that it's possible to see if you're infected and that people want to have that information in their in their hands. And even if it's not strictly necessary, like I tell people all the time, well, you know, I haven't been able to get a test, but my spouse has tested positive and I have, you know, a scratchy throat. It's like, well, you have COVID. <laughs> so, you know, you don't need you don't need a test to tell you that, you know, if you had a lot of exposure and you have the same symptoms that you are you have the same disease. But I think people really want this, and I hope to see more of it in the future. Like, why do we not have at-home flu tests? Why do we not have tests for, for a lot of common childhood illnesses? Now my kids are tween and teen, and uh, so it's not really as much of an issue. But when they were toddlers, it was a real pain to, like, scoop them up and take them to the doctor to rule out that it was flu. And so it would be great to have those uh, tools at hand, at home. Can you imagine that self-testing across a spectrum of different illnesses is going to become a much bigger 
ingredient, a much more routine part of American life? I have given up making major predictions over the last couple of years, but I can see that, you know, we are placing such an emphasis on whether or not somebody has symptoms of a disease. So, so to send your child to school, if they're symptomatic, they get tested. And so I can see that this evolving to, you know, well, what is that person sick with? Because hopefully this pandemic will end or at least cases will subside and there's always going to be another disease around the corner. And And the year before SARS, before COVID overtook us, almost half of my kids' uh, classes were out with flu and to the point where it threatened federal funding. Because if you have too many absences at a public school, then you know you have to shut the school for the day. And so, you know, that was a big problem at that time, and it's probably going to be a big problem in the future. We haven't talked about the big push to expand therapies, to expand antivirals, monoclonal antibodies, to bring in new new therapies. This is another big push, a new dimension, one that's getting much higher prioritization than previously. And in all cases, this is going to require having access convenient, readily available access to testing and have people habituated to this. What is this going to mean, do you think, in changing the way we look at testing? Well, for these drugs, they work best. And actually, all the therapies that we have, they work best the the earlier you can identify somebody has COVID. So so the the test, the priority has to be, and if, if the therapy itself was not too harmful, then the risks of starting without that test are less, but people will want to have a test before they proceed. So any delays in testing does interfere with the introduction of, of therapy. For a lot of hospitals, these therapies aren't yet quite as available, but hopefully within a couple of months, they will be more so. And do you expect that we're going to move beyond PCR to something that is less expensive, less technically demanding, faster? There are there are some new technologies that are still looking for the genetic material of the virus that have the potential to be uh, faster and cheaper, but none of those are yet available and, and none have been submitted to my knowledge to the FDA for consideration. So, I mean, there there's definitely a future where we can have that specificity that is given by PCR, but in a quicker format. Let's change the subject a bit and talk about some other topics that you've I've been very engaged in. You've written very cogently about the COVID-19 origin controversy. That's something we've spent a lot of time on here at CSIS. As we all know, we're in a standoff, a stalemate with the Chinese. I was talking to WHO earlier today about this. WHO is trying to field the second investigative mission. It's stalled until there's a decision taken by the Chinese. It's not likely to go anywhere. There's great concern that evidence is dripping away, blood samples are reach, reaching an expiration point, animal specimens, and on and on. What can be done to break this deadlock in your view? And are there ways to continue working on this, trying to get greater cooperation re resolution, but find a way to circumnavigate that so it doesn't stop all sorts of other cooperation in its tracks where we need to get the Chinese into a dialogue with others within the world around many other challenges. This is something that the CSIS Commission spent a lot of time thinking about and writing about. What are your thoughts? 
I started I started working on the piece because I I heard a few people who whose opinions I greatly respect take some of the uh, the laboratory leak evidence as being on par with the scientific evidence that's emerged that supports a natural spillover event from from the markets and. And I, I just want to kind of explain why that evidence that comes from the market spillover was indeed very weighty and, um, and really points to a natural event. But it, is it natural, honestly? Because the conditions that led to a whole bunch of animals being caged um, in close proximity in poor conditions in a market where people are happy to look the other way as illegal animals are sold. I mean, that's not, that's not a natural event. It is a, it is a human caused event and it's one that's going to happen again. And I have a, a really strong feeling that if we don't learn some of these lessons and address some of the one health challenges and the fact that, you know, th- these diseases are spilling over that we're just going to keep repeating this. So eventually, hopefully we'll learn the lessons. But how can we work with the Chinese on these, these, these issues? There is a lot that we need to do to be able to understand the, the spillover risks when it comes to bat colonies and humans that live around them and understanding of how working on some of the, the coronaviruses that we know about that could be transmitted. But honestly, I think we could work on just about anything together and it would be productive. I don't know if you know uh, Dave France, but he was the former commander of USAMRID, the U.S. Army Medical Research for Infectious yeah. Diseases. And he was involved in a lot of the trilat uh, stuff with working with the Soviets and trying where there's a lot of distrust all around. And scientists, scientist to scientist engagement was a um, was a good venue to be able to make progress, to be able to keep communication, to build some sort of rapport, even in tense times. And certainly, those were very tense times when when. And he has often said, "Well, we could get people together to to exchange baseball cards, and it would have a lot of value." And and so I I think you know there are many projects uh, that I think we could work on that would provide value, the most obvious of which is vaccinating the world. And, um, you know, we have a lot of shared global health challenges that can be productively engaged with, with technical experts from China and the U.S., and it would be less charged and contentious than uh, some of the political discussions. Thanks so much. Yes, we do know, David, and we've done quite a bit of work in this area that's, uh, we published a piece December 1st of our U.S.-China working group on this and trying to enumerate in fairly concrete terms, what are those areas of cooperation where we should be doing a lot more? Full disclosure, I was part of that. Um, I was part of the advisory group for that, and it was a great report, thanks to its co-authors. Thank you so much for your contribution to that. You're also an expert on gain-of-function research, um, its origins, lack, lack of a clear definition, and in the midst of the COVID-19 origin debate, we've had continued controversy over this and whether the U.S. government should be funding this. There's Hill Investigations, NIH, Echo Health Alliance. It's, it's, it's blossomed into a very fairly contested, somewhat confusing back and forth. Say a bit, a bit about your own views of this gain-of-function research. You might tell us, tell for our listeners, 
what it is, but also what's its future in the in the current environment. Yeah, so gain of function is a term that was originally used to um, describe some influenza experiments that were done in 2012 and were about to be published, but an advisory board to the health Department of Health and Human Services, the National Science Advisory Board for Biosecurity, they asked that the publication be halted while the publications were examined for potential risks and benefits. The work itself was looking at H5N1 influenza, and that is, thankfully has not yet taken off and become a pandemic, but it has been a, a concern for a long time because when people have gotten infected with H5N1, the mortality rate is awful. It's like 60 but thankfully, it has not transmitted from human to human. If it's happened at all, it has not happened very many times. So the worry is like, well, is H5N1 going to pick up enough mutations that's going to enable it to take off like a rocket? And if it maintains even a portion of this mortality rate, it would be awful. So a lot of researchers, a lot of flu researchers were trying to figure out, well, what is the genetic basis um, that leads to that transmission? Like, what should we be looking for in the wild? If we come across a sample that has this mutation, is this the, you know, uh-oh moment that we need to start making vaccine immediately? And then there are other people who are saying, eh, you know, H5N1 has been around a long time. We don't need to worry about it. I mean, if it was going to go pandemic, it would have happened by now. So, so there was, there were, these researchers took two different approaches to see if one, H5N1, has the potential to go to transmit mammal to mammal, and two, what is the genetic change that would ha happen that would make that possible? And uh, so it's a long story, but this, this kind of work that um, to introduce deliberately conditions that would make a virus more dangerous to humans for to be able to study that process that was called gain of function and it's it's not a good term because it wasn't a term that came from the scientific community like if you talk to a scientist and you say well i'm interested in gain of function research they'd be like gain of what function and they wouldn't really know what you meant and the problem with the situation now is that policy people have a sense of what gain of function is and we're trying to reverse engineer what that means as far as the scientific experiment goes and so it's led to a lot of confusion over, well, what is gain of function scientifically and what do we do about it? And, and how do you draw lines that say this is allowed, this is not allowed or needs uh, more oversight? It's easy if you're just talking about pathogens. You'd be like, well, if you're working with anthrax, you need this, this and this and this form and this clearance and everything else. But when you're talking about like different procedures for research that hasn't been done yet, because if you knew if you knew what if you'd done it before, it wouldn't be research. And, you know, and so it becomes very complicated and it's become kind of bizarrely political and charged. <laughs> yes. So given what all of the controversy now, some very reputable scientists are saying we should simply be putting a stop to this type of research. What's your thoughts on that? I think that all research that's done needs to be done for a purpose. Um, you don't do it for, for no reason. I think that the 
potential for a pathogen to take over the world and cause us a lot of problems is self-evident. I think the work can be done safely, but you need to have a mechanism where all these things are possible, where you're evaluating this, the, is it a good thing to do and how are you doing it and how are you making it safer? My problem with a lot of these conversations is like they stay at this really high level, like, well, you shouldn't be making things more dangerous. But very often the science is so much more nuanced and careful and not really so exciting. So I have gotten to distrust gain of function conversations that don't immediately become boring and not boring to like me because I find them interesting, but boring in the general sense, like what specific safety precautions are you doing? Are you thinking of, you know, what, what kinds of uh, background are you, you're, are you using for your, for your strains? I mean, there's all kinds of like nuances that can make the difference of, are you gaining information while making things as safe as possible? And we need to find this information because, you know, we don't have a good sense of some of these characteristics. When Omicron hit the streets and we were able to sequence it immediately and look at it and marvel at how many changes it had compared to Delta, we were able to say, wow, that's a lot of changes. But we weren't able to say, oh no, this means it's gonna be a lot more transmissible and it's gonna infect upper airways and not not lower lungs or you know, we're going our tests are at risk. We didn't, weren't able to have this really meaningful reaction to it because we know how to read it and we can make some predictions, but we're not as good at that as we should be. Thanks so much. You've also written a lot about the dynamics of misinformation, disinformation, and the corrosive impacts that has on public trust and confidence and on faith in science and in public health authorities. And you've called for a national strategy on this. Here at CSIS, we partnered with Heidi Larson. You've participated in that as well. Thank you very much in a task force on vaccine confidence and misinformation. What kind of mark do you give to the Biden administration for its actions in the first year and looking ahead and taking this issue up? I think it's fair to say that uh, we were, as a government, as a society, rather shocked to discover the degree to which this problem curtails or constrains our ability to win, win the willingness of people to get vaccinated, which is proving to be, you know, a destabilizing and terrible constraint on us. And we see this worldwide now, obviously. So tell us a bit about, you, you did call for a national strategy. Are we seeing such a thing begin to come together? I think um, it's a lot harder to address this now than it was at some earlier point. We have to have a, like a long-term strategy to educate people on how to discern what is manipulative and not true. And then also a shorter term, like trying to cut off the poison that's being put into our social discourse as well. So it's like you need a short-term fix to to cut out the poison and a longer term fix to be able to educate people to deal with this. And I, I'm relying on some of this from my the work of my great colleague, Tara Kirksell. But as far as the scientific misinformation goes, I, I want, um, I focus a lot more on that because I think uh, that's, that's something that scientists need to do, need to address. We have a, a situation right now in COVID where you have all kinds of 
so one example was the the Yan report that I wrote about. Um, so this woman uh, published an, uh, with colleagues, uh, funded by Steve Bannon and a few others, a report that said that COVID was a biological weapon, and this came out clo- very shortly before the election. I and another colleague who is a professor um, and another postdoc and a graduate student, we worked for three days to co- create a rebuttal to this uh, this report, just point by point, because she posted it as a preprint on a preprint server, and it wasn't getting peer reviewed, but it was getting read and quoted and uh, had a you know went viral everywhere. And so we we put in the work to basically give it a peer review, and we. We published it, and it helped to damp down the excitement over this her her piece because I mean it was it was full of scientific nonsense. It helped for the major media outlets like New York Times, Wall Street Journal to say, okay, not only um, have scientists said that it's nonsense, here is a twenty five point uh, rebuttal why it's nonsense. But how can you scale that up? You know, it took us all this time to, to counter it. And still she's, uh, she still has appeared multiple times on Tucker Carlson today and everything else. And, and it's, it's a real challenge. I, I think that we're going to need to do a lot. The national academies needs to invest resources into this, even though you don't want to invest any scientific resources away from the actual science. In the paper I wrote, I called for scientists to be placed in media organizations similar to the way that AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, places uh, scientists in uh, government agencies. Turns out there is such a program, but clearly it needs to be vastly expanded. As far as the Biden administration goes, I think that um, everything is focused on the vaccine effort and COVID, but this is a bigger problem than that, and it's going to have to be one that lasts for many years, because this is not a problem that's going away. Thank you. We ask all of our guests on this series to close by telling us what you feel gives you the greatest source of optimism and hope. What gives you the greatest hope? It's hard to, right now because of Omicron. It feels um, for a lot of people very dis- dispiriting. You know, we're, we've been doing this for so long. We thought we saw the finish line, and then it's it's not there. And but when I think about where we were a year ago, I wasn't vaccinated. My kids weren't vaccinated. They were in virtual school. So I'm really. I'm really happy that things are moving finally in, in the right direction. What gives me the most hope for the future? I think um, it's it's not it's not total uh, sunshine, but a story that I've been uh, kind of fascinated by is there's a Senator Ransdell of Louisiana who 100 years plus ago saw the devastation that infectious diseases um, had on the building of the Panama Canal. You know, there was malaria and yellow fever. He saw these diseases as really being a federal responsibility to do something about. And he kept uh, trying to get people interested in it, and nobody was. And then the 1918 flu epidemic ha- pandemic happened, and um, it kind of proved his point that, that infectious diseases were important and needed to be done, de- dealt with. 
but still it, it didn't, um, nothing really happened. It wasn't until 1928 when there was a, uh, flu epidemic that was not as bad as 1918, but bad enough to remind everyone that, huh, we never got around to doing anything in response to 1918. And, um, and then the Ransdale Act was passed and that was the creation of the National Institutes of Health. And so I have, it's not really the most optimistic view, but I feel confident that if we don't do, if we don't learn the lessons and do something to, to prevent the damage that COVID has uh, wrought and, and take a, a lot of care in how we reorganize to be able to deal with new infectious disease threats, we are going to have opportunities to do so in the future and with a hope that that it'll be not so bad and just, you know, we have an opportunity to to make some good changes. Thank you so much, Gigi, and thanks for being with us this morning. We're really very grateful. This has been a terrific conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much. Really such a pleasure. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Liz Pulver. You can find our full catalog of podcasts, including Pandemic Planet and AIDS Existential Moment, on our homepage at csis.org slash podcasts.